Romans. So why don't you turn with me in your Bibles to Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8. We're going to be picking up in verse 18 today. And we will finish the chapter. Let's pray. Let's entreat the Lord's favor. Father, we bless Your name. We praise You, God, because You are worthy. Lord, You are so worthy of all that we have and more. In fact, we're not even worthy, God, to ascribe worth to You. And yet, You invite us in to praise You and to bless Your name and to enjoy fellowship with You. To cast our cares upon You because You do care for us, Lord. And so I thank You, God, that You inhabit the praises of Your people. You are enthroned upon the praises of Your people. I pray, Lord, You would be enthroned upon our hearts. That You would be magnified and glorified. I pray as we get into Your Word that You would open our eyes that we would behold wonderful things, wondrous things. I pray that You would be glorified as we seek You in the Word and that You would minister to every heart in this room and that You would by Your Holy Spirit, teach us, comfort us, Lord, convict us, lead us. We praise You in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen, amen. Well, I titled this uh, message, Spiritual Blessings. And uh, last week, as we opened the chapter, chapter 8, I talked about spiritual adoption. That God did not just save us. He didn't just pardon us. He didn't just forgive us and leave us there. He could have. He didn't even have to save us. It's amazing that He did that. Amazing grace. But He didn't stop there. He went even farther and He invited us into His family. He made us sons and daughters. And we enjoy a loving relationship with a heavenly Father. God did that. And so that spiritual adoption, I talked about how uh, the Holy Spirit became a, a major player in the book of Romans at that point. Chapters 1 through 7, you may have seen the Spirit mentioned two times, three times, and now in chapter 8, it's mentioned 20 times. So we have this adoption, we have uh, been ushered into the family of God through the Holy Spirit. There are so many blessings that are ours in Christ that are made available through the indwelling Holy Spirit, and we're going to see more of that as we get into this, uh, the latter part of this chapter. But what I would say from this point forward is we're going to see all of these wonderful blessings that we enjoy in Christ. Spiritual blessings. And Ephesians chapter 1 actually opens that way. Paul says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in heavenly places. And then he begins to outline so many of those blessings there. And so I would say that as we work our way through chapter 8, that's what we're going to see. And so Paul deals with things like hope, in light of suffering, help, and weakness, assurance, and God's sovereignty, security, and the love of Christ, and in the work of Christ. And so those are wonderful, tremendous blessings that God has given to us in Jesus by the Holy Spirit. And so that's what we're going to be looking at today. So we'll pick up in verse 18, and we're going to talk about hope. Hope in the light of suffering. This is something that Really, only Christians have. People who trust in God. Uh, people in the world don't have this same kind of hope. So verse 18, it says, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. For the earnest expectation of creation eagerly waits for the revealing of the sons of God. So what is he talking about here? He's He's uh, making a a comparison here to glory and suffering. Well, back in verse 16 of chapter 8, where we closed last week, I'll read that for you. It says, The Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs. Heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ. If indeed we suffer with Him, that we may also be glorified together. So I talked about the fact that though we most certainly will share in the glory of Christ, there will be suffering here in this life. It's unavoidable. It's inescapable. It's just something that we all deal with here in this life. But then Paul 
picks up in verse 18 and says, I don't consider the sufferings of this present life worthy to be compared with the glory, the glory that will be revealed in us in Christ on that day. And so though we suffer in this life, it just doesn't compare to the glory in the next life. And that is the hope that we have. And sometimes that's all we have to cling to, is knowing that it's not going to always be this way. There's not going to always be death. There will not always be sorrow and suffering and sickness and sin. That there will be glory unspeakable that awaits the children of God one day. And Paul, uh, above most people, had to cling to that because he truly knew what suffering was in ways that I think most of us will never really know. But still, we have this hope. We have this hope in the light of suffering. And so Paul, from this point forward, in the next several verses, is going to begin to use earth itself as an illustration. We groan within ourselves for things to be made right, and Paul says, so too does the earth. It's kind of interesting how he makes this parallel. I don't know exactly what was going on in Paul's mind when he starts using the earth itself as an example here. We'll talk about that as we go. But verse 20, For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of Him who subjected it in hope. Because the creation itself also will be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. So he says that creation itself was subjected to corruption, to the, to the fall, to the curse. We know that God made all things and it was what? It was good. It was good. But then when sin entered in and when God cursed uh, particularly man, He said, now you're going to work, but you're going to work by the sweat of your brow, by the sweat of your face. And work is going to be hard. And the ground is going to yield thorns and thistles. And so it seems that the earth itself was subjected to the curse. And just as we groan within ourselves, looking for the day when all things will be made right, so too does the earth groan. The earth itself groans. One day the curse will be gone, and there will be a new heaven and a new earth. And we all look forward to that day. We all look forward to that. And just like our new glorified bodies that we will have, so too uh, the earth will be set free from that corruption, from that curse. New heaven, new earth. So verse 22, For we know that the whole creation groans and labors with birth pangs together until now. Not only that, but we also who have the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves, eagerly waiting for the adoption the redemption of our body. So just as creation groans with labor pangs, and that's why I say I'm not 100% sure what Paul has in mind there. I don't know if he's thinking like seismic activity, volcanic eruption, all those kinds of catastrophic things that happen, and he likens that to the earth itself groaning for the day of redemption. But he says that we too, who are the first fruits of the Spirit, we groan within ourselves. We groan. The first fruits of the Spirit, that is those who have been born of Christ, those who have been ushered into the family of God by the Holy Spirit, we groan now. We groan within ourselves. And what do we groan over? Sin. We hate sin. We hate sin in our lives. We hate the damage that it does. We hate sickness. We hate suffering. We hate the loss of loved ones. And we groan within ourselves longing for the day when those things no longer master us and master this world. We eagerly await that adoption of the body. Now, we've already received a spiritual adoption. We've talked about this at length. But you know, there's going to be a physical adoption. There's going to be a day when we will have a new body a new body. And so Paul begins to take up this, this theme here, verse 24. For we were saved in this hope, but hope that is seen is not hope. For why does one still hope for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we eagerly wait for it with perseverance. So we were saved with this hope that 
with the spiritual birth, we would one day have a physical resurrection. And that is to say, we would have a new body that would match the new man. So we've talked about this already. We have the new man in us. The new man, the new woman who is in Christ, but you still have this body. Paul refers to it as the body of death. So there's a real mismatch there. You have this new nature in Christ and you have the old sinful tendencies there that are at war with each other. And you have this body that is growing older all the time and beginning to fall apart and things that you used to do so easily you can't do anymore. And it seems like it's happening at a faster rate every passing day. Days, weeks, months, years. But one day that body will be laid into the grave, but you, who you really are, will pass from this life into the next and you will have a new body that matches the new nature. And you will be in glory with Christ and you will be able to see see God. And we'll talk about that in a moment. And He's going to give us a body that is able to do that. Because honestly, I think right now if we were to see God, you know, your face would probably just melt off. You know, And so this body can't handle the glory of God. So that is the hope that we were saved with. And Paul talks about this in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 1-5. through 5. I'll just read this to you. He says, For we know that if our earthly house, this tent, is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. So now he's, talking, uh, he's using this idea of this body that we are in right now. It's, a, it's just a tent. It's temporal it's passing. Uh, one day we will take that off and we will have a heavenly home that is not made with hands, but by God. We will have that new body. He goes on to say, For in this we groan, there's that language again, we groan earnestly, desiring to be clothed with our habitation which is from heaven. If indeed, having been clothed, we shall not be found naked. For he uh, for we who are in this tent groan, being burdened, not because we want to be unclothed, but further clothed, that mortality may be swallowed up by life. Don't you like that? That mortality may be swallowed up by life. Now He who has prepared us for this very thing is God, who also has given us the Spirit as a guarantee. So we know that one day we will have a new body, that this tent that we are currently in, is passing away, we will take that off and we will have the new building, the new house that is made for us by God. And we groan for that, being burdened, desiring that. And we eagerly wait with perseverance. He says, we hope for that which we have not received. He says, why do you hope for it if you already have it? It's an obvious answer. We don't have it, so we long for that day. And in the meantime, we eagerly wait with perseverance, that's that word again, to endure, to persevere. I talked about it recently, dancing the hoopamone, right? You're underneath this unbearable weight, this crushing weight, yet we still have to keep moving forward, one foot in front of the other, and God is working something good in us in the process, but we persevere here in this life, in this body, eagerly waiting, groaning within ourselves for glory, 1 John takes up this, this idea as well in chapter 3 of 1 John. He says, Beloved, now we are children of God, and it has not yet been revealed what we shall be, but we know that when He is revealed, we shall be like Him, for we shall see Him as He is. And everyone who has this hope, this hope in Him purifies himself just as He is pure. So John says, look, beloved children of God, we don't know what we will be when we see Him, but we know that when we see Him, we will be like Him. That's amazing. That's amazing to consider. And he says, everyone that has this hope purifies himself just as he is pure. So if you know this is the case, if you know that that is the end goal, that one day we're going to be in His presence and we're going to be like Him, then we're going to want to live like that here and now. We're going to want to live lives of purity. We call this the purifying hope. That is the hope that we have. This confident expectation that one day we will see Him and be like Him. So even here and now, we walk in the light as He is in the light. Amen? And so that is the hope. That is the hope that the believer has. That it's not what, what is happening down here is not the end. That this is just temporary. It's like vapor in the wind. Life passes so quickly. 
But there is the there and then, the eternal, when we have that hope of glory and all things are made right. And there is the, the death of death, the end of suffering, the end of sin, the end of loss. And we will know God in perfection and we will worship Him in perfection. And that's such a glorious thing to me because it's something we really don't know much about right now. Our, our worship is so weak. Unfortunately, I, I hate to say it. It just is. It's sin-tainted. We're so easily distracted. We're trying to sing to God, but we can't stop thinking about how someone offended us or how you know this happened over here or this worry over there. But there will be a day when we will know perfect praise and glory. There will be no distraction. And we will see Him as He is. We will share in that glory and we will worship Him in majesty and in holiness. So we have that hope. Next, we have the Spirit's help. We have the Spirit's help in weakness. Verse 26, Likewise, the Spirit also helps in our weakness, for we do not know what we should pray for as we ought. But the Spirit Himself makes intercession for us with groanings which cannot be uttered. This is amazing right here. So, follow this. Just as creation groans, just as the believer groans, so too does the Holy Spirit groan within us, making intercession on our behalf. The Spirit helps in our weakness, pleading on our behalf, crying out on our behalf to God. That is an incredible reality to the Christian, to think that the Holy Spirit dwelling in you is praying to God on your behalf. It says, with groanings that cannot even be uttered. Now, let me just address that real quick. What does that mean with groanings that cannot be uttered? Um, some people take that to, to mean that uh, when someone is speaking in tongues, when someone is praying to God in, a, in an unknown language, what we consider a spiritual gift, that that's what that is. You don't know how to pray, you're hurting, you're confused, and so you just pray in the Spirit and you begin to cry out to God and that is the Spirit praying on your behalf with groanings that cannot be uttered. Uh, a lot of people hold that view. Uh, obviously, a lot of people do not. Now, I would say, and, and most um, Bible teachers, commentators that, that I have looked to over the years would say that that's not what Paul is saying here. That's not really the point. This is not a treatise on the gift of tongues. He's really emphasizing that the Holy Spirit intercedes on our behalf and prays for us in a way that we don't even know how to pray so often. And, and we'll deal with that in a moment. Now, I'm not going to say that it can't mean that. I'm not going to say that it cannot mean that. That this is somehow uh, dealing with the gift of speaking in tongues. But I don't think in this particular verse that that's what it is saying. MacArthur says this. And I really like this. I love the way he words it. This intercession that is happening, this groanings which cannot be uttered between the Spirit and the Father... It's divine articulations within the Trinity that cannot be expressed in words, but carry profound appeals for the welfare of every believer. This work of the Holy Spirit parallels the high priestly work of intercession by the Lord Jesus on behalf of believers. So we're told that we have a high priest in the heavenlies, Jesus, who ever lives to intercede on our behalf. He ever, li uh, ever lives to pray and to plead before the Father on our behalf but so does the Holy Spirit dwelling in us. We have the Holy Spirit who helps in our weakness, for we don't know how to pray as we ought, is what Paul says. So, sometimes we just don't pray. Prayerlessness is a huge issue, is it not? I think we could all relate with that. But guess what? The Holy Spirit prays. The Holy Spirit prays on your behalf. The Holy Spirit is helping you in your weakness. Jesus is still praying and interceding on your behalf. Sometimes we have wrong prayers. Wrongful prayer. We're praying for the wrong things. James says that. He says you, you have not because you ask not, but when you do ask, you ask amiss. Because you really just want to spend it on your own, your, yourself. Your own sinful pleasures. Selfishness. And so sometimes we pray for the wrong things. Sometimes... We don't know what to pray for. I mean, I think we can all relate with that. There are certain situations that are so complex, we don't really know what exactly we ought to pray. 
whether someone is, is suffering immensely, you know, is it Lord take them home so that they don't have to suffer anymore? Is it Lord heal them? You just don't really know what God's will is. And there are so many other things that I'm sure we, we could think of, but sometimes we don't know how to pray. But guess what? The Holy Spirit does. Jesus does. In verse 27 it says, Now he who searches the hearts knows what the mind of the Spirit is because he makes intercession for the saints according to the will of God. So there is a perfect and unhindered communication between the Father and the Spirit that is going on. And there is no confusion there. There is no breakdown in communication. You know, sometimes we use language and people just have no clue what we're talking about. And Christians are infamous for this. I mean, the Christianese that we began to, to learn, it's like speaking a foreign language to unbelievers so often. And so we start using words like, you know, I just pray for a hedge. Lord, just hedge them in. Hedge of protection. It's like, what in the world is that? Or just other stuff like, you know, um, I just want to sit at His feet and seek His face and I just want to glean wisdom. And the unbeliever is like, what in the world is going on here? Well, there is none of that between the Father and the Spirit. It is perfect communication and the Father knows and the Spirit knows what our, what our needs are better than we know. The Father knows our needs before we even know what they are. And the Spirit is helping in our weakness by ministering on our behalf. The Spirit is pleading on our behalf in total accordance with the Father's will. The Spirit, the Father, the Son, their will is always in perfect union, perfect harmony. Anything that Jesus ever prayed, the Father answered it because He would never pray something outside of the Father's will because they are in perfect union. They are one. And so sometimes we pray and we don't really know what God's will is and, and so oftentimes we'll cap at the end of it, but your will be done. You know, and if this is not your will, then you know, how about plan B? But there is no plan B with the Holy Spirit and the Father. When He intercedes on our behalf, He's interceding with perfect knowledge and perfect understanding of the Father's heart and the Father's will and a perfect understanding of our own weakness and inability. And so this is something that we should take great, great comfort in. We should be so very excited as Christians to understand that this is happening on our behalf, that the Spirit uh, ministers on our behalf in our weakness. So we have hope and suffering as a believer, and we have help and weakness as a believer. Those are two blessings that are ours in Christ. And now I'm going to talk about assurance. Assurance in God's sovereignty. Now let me just preface this portion with this. These are controversial verses. Um, there has been some theological warfare, wrestling that has been happening in the church for 2,000 years. It's not my intention to get into that today, but I'm going to in the coming weeks because some of the things that are going to come up in this text right here are really going to come up in chapter 9. So I was talking to Pastor Bill about it. Should I really get into every nuance of it here and now, or should I wait? And Because I'm planning on doing some topical messages and really delving into the history of, of, of this, what I'm getting ready to talk about, predestination, election, things like that. And uh, he said, well, I'll tell you what, don't open up the can of worms until you can look at every worm. And so I, I like that. So I'm not going to get too in-depth with it today. But uh, next week's our Christmas message, but then after that we're going to spend some time getting into the idea of God's sovereignty and man's free will, man's responsibility. But for today, these verses that are in front of us, as I said, are very controversial, and I just want to, to let it say what it says. Permission to do that? Can I just say what the Word plainly says and we just trust that God is, is good and that God is faithful and we can't always figure out how, how these things tie together, but somehow they do. And God's, God's marvelous, mysterious economy. You know, just one, one thing regarding the idea of free will and God's sovereignty. It was uh, asked Spurgeon, Charles Spurgeon, you know, how do you reconcile those two things? And his response to that was, I don't need to reconcile friends. They are they just marry together in some some marvelous way, and so uh, we'll be talking about that a lot more in the coming weeks. 
especially before we get into chapter 9. But for now, I just wanted to define a couple of terms. You, you will often hear me talk about sovereignty, God's sovereignty, and I, I will use that word quite a bit, but I want to define sovereignty and providence. Those are two words that I use a lot and that we're really going to see as we get into these verses. So sovereignty, what is it? Well, the basic definition is it's supreme power or authority. So each nation, in a, in a much smaller sense, you have a sovereign nation. It has the ability to govern itself as it see, sees fit. And that, that changes from nation to nation, what that may look like. But you have a sovereign nation, right? Well, the sovereignty of God is a Christian teaching that God is supreme. He's a supreme authority and all things are under His control. Period. The Easton's Bible Dictionary defines God's sovereignty as His absolute right to do all things according to His own good pleasure. God is God. God can do what He wants to do. Period. And that's what Romans 9 talks about. We are the, we are the clay. He is the potter. We have no right to tell the potter what to do with the clay. God is sovereign. He is creator. He knows a thing or two that we don't know. And so we can't try to put God on the spot as though He answers to us. It just doesn't work that way. And so even this idea of sovereignty can be skewed for us because nations can be sovereign for a time until they're overthrown by another nation and then they become engulfed by the sovereignty of another nation. That will never happen with God. God reigns supreme always in every era of human history and God will never be dethroned. He is always powerful, always powerful, always sovereign. And then providence. God's ability to cause people, situations, scenarios to work together in such a way that it brings about His desired end. God is, is working providentially. He's, he's moving kind of the... the puppet master, if you will, on the strings. He's working things together in such a way that it lines up in a way that we could have never imagined, we could have never orchestrated. God did that. It has the idea of God providing, God's provision. And so just a couple of those I can name for you. Uh, the story of Ruth in the Old Testament starts out on a really bad note. Um, Ruth, we know the story. Naomi, her husband, he dies. They had two sons that had married these other two young ladies. The two sons die. And so then there's just Naomi and her two daughter-in-laws. And one decides she's going to stay in Moab, but uh, Naomi and Ruth decide they're going to go to Bethlehem, the land where, where um, Naomi had originally come from. And so they're there. They're desperately poor. And Ruth goes out to glean in the fields. I talked about this before. The law said that if something was dropped on the ground, those who were harvesting could not pick it up. They had to leave it there for the poor, for the widows, and they couldn't glean the corners of the field. So Ruth is out there, and she's gleaning. And then it uses this phrase, and it just happened. It just so happened that she was gleaning in Boaz's field. And so she connected with Boaz, and, and we uh, know the story. Um, they ended up becoming uh, married, and uh, it was a, it's a wonderful story, but it just happened. Did it just happen? Or was that God's sovereign providence? Well, we know what it was. But even more than that, what was happening on a much larger scale, does anyone know what, what lineage Ruth was in? And Boaz, the lineage of Christ. Exactly. And so God was doing something on a much larger scale. And through that story, through that little mundane thing happening, really in the middle of nowhere, two very obscure people, God was working together on the larger scale to bring about the, the Christ, the Messiah. That's God's providence. That's God's providence. We see that with Joseph uh, in Genesis 50. He says, what you meant for evil, God meant for good. His brothers hated him. They were jealous of him. They sold him into slavery and told the dad that he had been killed by wild animals. And meanwhile, he went through a lot of rough patches there, but God raised him up to become the second most powerful man in Egypt. And then there was this restoration of the family, and they were scared, and they thought surely Joseph was going to have them killed. And he said, no. He said, you meant this for evil, but God meant it for good. God used it for good to save many people. 
And so that is God's providence. Now, I'd like to just share um, a story of God's providence in my own life. You know, I, you all know I talk about it quite a bit, my past history with, with addiction. And I went to a, a faith-based program called U-Turn for Christ, and that's my wife's story as well. And so I'm from South Carolina, and I went to a, a place in Tennessee. My wife is uh, from Napa, and this church sent her to U-Turn for Christ in Tennessee. And many of you in here were praying for her, and you were a part of that story. And so she went, and you know, we went through the program, put down roots there in Tennessee. We met at the church, became good friends, started dating. We got married. We actually got married here at this church on the stage. And a year later, we moved out here, and I started serving um, in the church. And uh, within two years, I was the, the senior pastor. And so... I mean, you can't write that kind of stuff. The church that sent Jess to, to U-Turn for Christ, she came back with the, the new pastor of the church, you know. And so uh, that's God's providence. And so we see that kind of thing with God's sovereignty. He's in control. He reigns. He is supreme. And He, is, he has providence. He works all these things together to the counsel of His own goodwill for His own good pleasure. So with that, verse 28. And we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are the called according to His purpose. I love this verse. I'm, I am uh, grieved that this has become like a coffee mug verse and that um, people hear it and think, yeah, 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 I get it. And sometimes people will even get offended if you try to share this verse with them if they're hurting because it has become trivial to us. But this Reality that God causes all things, all things to work together for good ultimately for those who love Him and are called according to His purpose. This is one of the greatest promises for the Christian. God does not waste anything, even our failures. God is able to use that for good. Our mistakes, our weakness, our failures, wrong decisions, whatever it is. God can use that. God can redeem it for good. And I'll remember the first time as a believer that this, this became a reality for me. You know, I was um, newly saved and God was doing an awesome work in my life and I was so sure that there were certain things in my life that, that were gone forever until, you know, I met that, just that right person. You know, God puts those people in our, in our lives. And we had an altercation and I just flipped out. And uh, I was so grieved. I thought, man, that, that guy is still alive. I didn't know that. And I'm talking to the pastor about it, and I said, you know, one good thing that has come out of this is just realizing that that is still there, and that's something that needs to be dealt with. And he said, God works all things together for good, Rob. Even in that, God was able to reveal something to you about yourself. And that was when it clicked, and I thought... Wow, that's amazing. God works all things together for good. He's able to redeem it, use it, and to advance His cause by it. And that is a wonderful promise that we have. Whatever you're going through right now in your life, God is working. And God is able to use it. And even when we fail, even when we don't pass the test, God still uses that. God has still worked something in you even through failing the test. Whatever it may be, know this, God is ultimately using it. Nothing is wasted, and He's doing great work in your life through it. Verse 29, For whom He foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son, that He might be the firstborn among many brethren. So whom God foreknew, these He also predestined, that we would be conformed to the image of His Son. May I just say, first off, that's what God is doing. God is in the business of, of conforming us into the image of Jesus. If you want to know what God's will is for your life, there it is. <clears throat> that's what God is up to. He is making you like Jesus. And He's able to work all things together to that end. Difficulties, blessings, whatever the case may be. We're told that whom God foreknew, He predestined to this end. Now, some people, this word foreknew, they think this is the key that unlocks the mystery of God's sovereignty and man's free will. 
And they think foreknowledge is that God, looking down the corridor of time, was able to see who would choose Him and who would not. And so the people who chose Him, He predestined. And the people who would reject Him, He rejected. And um, Chuck Smith, Pastor Chuck, used to say that, you know, if you knew who the bet, uh, winning horse was, of course you would bet for him. And, you know, God's placing His bet on the winning horse. Um, you know, I, I have to say I disagree with that. And, and most, most scholars and commentaries that I have looked to, pastors, do too. It is not some knowledge that God had beforehand. This is a verb, it's an action, and it literally means foreordained. Foreordained. And so the best sense that I could find of this is in Jeremiah 1.5. It says this, God speaking to Jeremiah he says, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. I knew you. Before you were born, I sanctified you. I mean, I set you apart. I ordained you a prophet to the nations. Before Jeremiah was even in his mother's womb, God knew who he was. He knew him personally. He knew him intimately. And he had already marked out the path, the calling that was going to be set on his life. And he said, I sanctified you and I ordained you to be a prophet to the nations. That is foreknowledge. It's not that God just knows about you. It's God knows you in the most intimate way. He knows everything about you. Everything that will ever happen in your life. God is intimately aware. And then it says that the one whom He foreknew, He predestined. This literally means to mark out or to appoint or to determine beforehand. So whom God foreknew before time even began, God predestined. Predestined that they would be conformed to the image of His Son. And as I said, this is God's ultimate objective in the believer's life. Verse 30, Moreover, whom He predestined, these He also called. Whom He called, these He also justified. And whom He justified, these He also glorified. This is sometimes referred to as the, the golden chain of redemption in Romans chapter 8. And there are five things that happen here. Foreknowledge, predestination, the call, the effectual call, justification, and glorification. These five things. God's in control of every aspect of it. And so, again, the point I'm trying to make here is that there is, we have assurance in God's sovereignty. We have assurance in God's providence. God is in control. Praise God for that. Thank You, Lord, that I am not in control. Thank You, Lord, that it is not up to me. And this is something that we ought to rest in. God is sovereign, ultimately, okay? And so, I'm looking to the sovereignty of God any day over the sovereignty of man. You, you understand what I'm, what I'm saying here? Because there's nothing good in me. There's nothing good in this guy right here. You know, if, there, if it were up to me to choose God, I wouldn't. Because I know that deep down I'm, I am a wicked man and my heart is deceitfully wicked. No one can know it. If I could lose my salvation, I would lose my salvation. I'm depending on God to keep me. To, to hold me until the very end. Like a, like a parent would grasp, clutch his child as they're racing across a freeway. You understand? I think as a parent here, you know exactly what I'm talking about. And so this idea of foreknowledge and predestination, and he says those, those whom he has predestined, he called. And I, I reference this as the the effectual call. God calls and you respond. John chapter 6 Jesus talks about that very thing. No one comes to the Father, no one comes to me, excuse me, unless the Father what? Draws him. Unless the Father draws him. And so God foreknows, He predestines, He calls, we respond, and then there is justification. That is declared righteous. And we talked about this at great length. Salvation happens the sinner is justified. He's declared righteous, innocent before God. And then just, uh, justification goes straight to glorification to receive our resurrected body. 
and to be in glory with God, notice that it skips over sanctification. It's as good as done. When you are justified, when you are declared righteous with God, you are as good as glorified in God's sight. It is happening. There is no chance that it is not. So with God, it's as good as done. Foreknown, predestined, called, justified, glorified. And this is great news. And this is very comforting to the believer because God is in control. God is the one who declares the end from the beginning. He predestined us to adoption before the foundation of the world. And He who began a good work in us is faithful to complete it until the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is in control. And I thank God for that. I praise God for that. I hope you do too. All right. Security in the work of Christ. Security in the work of Christ. Verse 31. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare His own Son, but delivered Him up for us all, how shall, we, how shall He not with Him also freely give us all things? So if God is in control and this is all His plan, who can thwart that? Who can stop it? Answer? Nobody. Nobody. If God is for us, who can be against us? And then He says, God didn't even withhold His own Son. God did not withhold His only Son, but what? He freely gave Him. He freely gave His Son. Now, if God did that when we were enemies, if God freely gave His Son to die for enemies, how much more now is God for us that we are His children? You ever think about that? It's like God saved me when, when I was an enemy when I was in no way seeking after Him, when there was absolutely nothing in me that was worthy of being saved, God gave the most precious thing that He had to give His Son. Yet now that I am saved and I am walking as a believer and I'm in this loving relationship with God so often, I feel like or act like God's out to get me. You ever been in that place? I mean, some Christians live that way. They live their life as though it's performance-based with God. And on some days, God loves them. And on some days, God doesn't love them so much. And it's usually tied to performance, how I'm doing today with my little checklist. But if God was for you when you were an enemy and He saved you, how much more is He for you now that you are a child of God? God is both just and the justifier. of the, And He has done this through His Son. God remains... Just, He remains the faithful judge, yet at the same time He was able to justify the sinner through His Son. And Paul says, the one who has died, risen, ascended, and is interceding for us. This has all been accomplished by Jesus. This is the work of the cross. This is the work of Jesus on our behalf. And we are secure in that. We are secure in the work that Jesus has done for us, I want you to let that soak in for a minute. God was for you when you were an enemy. He saved you through His Son. He says that no one can bring a charge against you now. No one can bring a charge against His elect, including ourselves. If no one else can bring a charge against you, if the enemy cannot bring a charge against you because of what Christ has done, I mean, we do an awful good job of condemning ourselves, don't you think? I have known people and at times have even felt this way about myself. I thought, I am doing such a good job right now of shaming myself, condemning myself, guilting myself. The enemy doesn't even need to do that. The enemy doesn't even have to mess with me. I'm doing his job for him. And here it says, who's going to bring a charge against God's elect? No one. Why? Because the cross is greater. The cross is that much greater than your sin. And when we try to make such a big deal about our failures and our shortcomings, we fail to make a big deal about the cross. And the Gospel. The glorious Gospel. We could not save ourselves. We're not good people. We never were good people. We shouldn't be shocked when we mess up. But such is the grace of God, such is the love of God, that He sent His Son to do for us what we could not do for ourselves. And He lived the perfect life that none of us could ever even begin to hope to live. And then He died the death and suffered the separation from the Father that we all deserved. 
in our place so that we wouldn't have to. So that if we put our trust in Jesus for salvation, we would receive His righteousness. And our sin, our sin debt, the penalty that was meant for us would be upon Him on the cross. And then we would be justified, declared righteous, declared innocent before God once for all and ushered into the house of God to be beloved children, sons and daughters of God. All of that by our precious Savior Jesus on the cross. And if He has done that, nothing can stop the love of Christ. Nothing can separate us from the security that is ours because of the work of Christ. Verse 35, now we're going to see that we are secure in His love. We are secure because of the work of the cross, and now we are secure because of the love of Christ. Verse 35, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or peril, or sword? Jesus loves His people, and nothing whatsoever can stop that. You understand? Jesus loves you if you are His, and nothing can stop that. His love is greater. His love is amazing. No amount, you know, these words that Paul uses, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, peril, sword, I think can be lost a little bit on the ears. So let me put it this way. No amount of difficulty, danger, tragedy, doubt, fear, depression, or struggle can separate you from the love of Christ. Amen? Nothing can separate you from the love of Christ. In John chapter 10, Jesus, talking about Himself as the Good Shepherd, says this, verse 11, I am the Good Shepherd. The Good Shepherd gives His life for the sheep. My sheep hear My voice, and I know them, and they follow Me, and I give them eternal life, and they shall never perish. Neither shall anyone snatch them out of My hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. It is what it is. He is the Good Shepherd. We are His sheep. He laid down His life for us. He gives us eternal life. Nothing can stop that. Nothing can separate us from the love of Christ. Nothing can snatch us out of His hand. Nothing can snatch us out of the Father's hand. We are His. And it is because of the work of Christ and it is because of the love of Christ. That is our firm foundation. It is not because of our ability, our ability to do good. It is not because of our ability to keep ourselves in right standing with God. It is because He chose us, because He saved us, because He secured us through the blood of Christ, and He continues to secure us by the love of Christ. We are saved by grace and we are kept by grace. You understand? Saved by grace, kept by grace. It's not a matter of being saved by grace and now kept by your own ability to do good. Paul talks about that in Galatians. He says, Who has bewitched you? Having begun in the Spirit, now you think you'll be perfected by the flesh? We are saved by grace and kept by grace. We are secure in the work of Christ and we are secure in the love of Christ. Verse 36, As it is written, For your sake we are killed all day long, we are accounted as sheep for the slaughter. Yet in all these things, we are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. So Paul is quoting from Psalm 44:22, And what he's saying here is that even in suffering, even in death, even though we are Christians and we will encounter suffering and death, we are still conquerors. We are still conquerors through Him. And that word... Um, more than conquerors here, it's a compound word. It literally means over-conquerors. Over-conquerors through Him who loved us. Why are we conquerors? Because of Him. Not because of us. Through Him who loved us. The victory is in Christ. And ultimately, the greatest enemy, death itself, is defeated by Him. And again, this is just another reality of how God works all things together for good. Even death, even suffering, we are more than conquerors. And God is able to do that which He has said He would do. Verse 38, For I am persuaded 
that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Paul is absolutely convinced, that's what that is, persuaded, he was absolutely convinced that absolutely nothing here on this earth, high or low, no matter what it is, could separate him from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. That's the assurance that we have. We are secure, we are stable, we are on solid ground because of the love of Christ and absolutely nothing can separate us from that. Nothing from within, our own personal struggles and fears and doubts, depression, whatever it may be, nothing from without. Nobody can stop the love of God. No one can outsend God's love at the cross. It's greater. Anyone in here right now, there's nothing that you have done that can stop you from receiving the love of Christ if you don't already know it. You can have this assurance. Sometimes people think, God can never forgive me. Not after what I have done. That is simply not the case. There is no sin that is greater than the cross. And you can have this assurance. You can have this security. You can have this help. You can have this hope. You can have this confidence. You can have this love. You can have this love that is unlike any love that this world has ever known or will ever know. And it's ours. It's ours in Christ Jesus. It's one of the greatest blessings that we have. You know, it's to know God and to love God and to be loved by God. Amen? And this is just one of the many blessings that are ours in Christ. I'm convinced of this. Are you convinced of this? Paul's convinced of this. I hope that you are. And if you don't know this love, you can know it today. And I would encourage you, just right where you're at, we're going to close with a song. Pastor Joe is going to close us out. If you don't know this love, if you haven't put your trust in Jesus to save you uh, from your sin and from, from the wrath of God and hell, then you can cry out today, God forgive me. God save me. If you want to be saved and to God's love, saved from wrath, but saved to know the love of the Father through the Son, Jesus Christ, by the Holy Spirit, you can have that today. Even where you sit, as we sing, you can cry out, God save me. God help me. I love you. God, I want to know you. God, I want to experience that love. And that's my encouragement to you. I plead with you. Today is the day of salvation. Let's pray. Father, we love You and we thank You that You're in control. We thank You that everything that we have, You have accomplished and secured for us. We never earned it. We don't have to keep it, Lord. We are secure in You. And You who have begun a good work in us, You are faithful to complete it until the day of Christ Jesus. We rest in it, Lord. We rejoice in it, God. We praise You because of it. Thank You for what You have done for us. And thank You for the love of Christ from which we could never be separated. Praise You, Father. We worship You. We love You. In Jesus' name, Amen.